Welcome to the Benebris International Podcast. I'm your host, CEO Dan Mary Ashen. Thank you for spending some time with us today. I hope you're staying home, wearing your masks, washing your hands, and taking good care of yourselves. My guest today is Seth Fransman, op-ed editor and Middle East affairs analyst at the Jerusalem Post and author of the new book, After ISIS, America, Iran, and the Struggle for the Middle East. In the book, Fransman analyzes the rise and fall of ISIS from the perspective of a war reporter who has visited and observed Middle East conflicts from all over the region. Fransman has covered the war against the Islamic State, three Gaza wars, the conflict in Ukraine, and the refugee crisis in Eastern Europe. It's also reported everywhere from Iraq and Turkey to Jordan and Egypt to Ukraine and Russia. He earned his PhD from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He previously served as a research associate at the Rubin Center for Research and International Affairs at the Interdisciplinary Center in Herzliya, and as an assistant professor of American studies at Al-Quds University. He's also the executive director of the Middle East Center for Reporting and Analysis. In our conversation today, I'll be speaking with Seth about his book and how his experiences reporting in the Middle East have shaped his analyses of events on the ground in an area known as a tough neighborhood. We'll also talk about how the coronavirus has impacted the dynamics in the region, from oil prices to war zones to Iranian hegemonism. Seth, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start first with the book, and then we can uh, move on to the other issues. Uh, what prompted you, uh, with all of the issues surrounding uh, Israel and roiling the Middle East, uh, what drew you to the subject of writing about ISIS? Well, it's hard to remember now, but I think about six years ago, in uh, spring of 2014, the Islamic State, or ISIS, if people probably recall, they suddenly kind of popped up on our radar because we started seeing videos on Facebook and social media and Twitter of people, you know, being mass executed and machine gunned and killed. And I remember seeing those for the first time in, in Jerusalem and just shocked. First of all, I thought they might be fake. And then it turned out, no, this is really happening. Massive numbers of people, uh, primarily minorities, Christians, Yazidis or Shiites in Iraq were being rounded up by this organization. And this wasn't like Al-Qaeda-style terrorism where, you know, you blow up a church or a mosque. This was a systematic uh, genocidal campaign. And I think all of us, um, if we're Jewish especially, we think back to what the Einsatzgruppen did or things like that in 1941, and it was immediately relatable. And I was living at the time here in Jerusalem in Israel, and, you know, Iraq is not that far away. It's just a hop, skip, and a jump. You fly through Jordan, you can be in Erbil in northern Iraq in the Kurdish region in a few hours. And the Kurdish region at the time was safe, and it was relatively pro-Western. So even though it was about 40 kilometers from the front line or 60 kilometers, you could fly into Erbil, and you could at least be with friendly forces. I think people probably recall that was the same years that um, Stephen Sotloff and James Foley were kidnapped by ISIS and beheaded. So as a journalist, there was a lot of concern about going there. But I just felt, you know, I, it was kind of my calling or my duty. I'd covered a lot of other things in the region. But I just felt like, you know, if you have an opportunity to go and take part in an important conflict that is sort of maybe generational defining, I should go. When I got up and I got a plane ticket and I, I felt that I maybe had a 50% chance of returning and I'm still here. So 
We're glad that you made it back. Uh, Seth, you, you've written about the Yazidis, and the point that you made about the Einsatzgruppen is an interesting uh, point, because I, I also you know, remember um, those video clips uh, that we saw of these roundups um, of, of the Yazidis. Tell us about that and, and how you, you became drawn to that particular aspect. I know you've written about all of it, but that particular aspect of, of this experience. Well, when I heard about the, you know, I didn't know much about Yazidis. I knew a little bit about Iraq because I had one or two relatives that served there uh, after 2003. And obviously, I think anyone that grew up in my generation remembers the Gulf War or 9-11 or their invasion of 2003. So we were very familiar with Saddam Hussein. But I think the, the Yazidis were a group I'd never really heard about. But then I did know that groups prior to ISIS had targeted minorities. And there was a group there that you sometimes read about in, in stories where they said they call these people devil worshipers, et cetera, et cetera. But what ISIS did in 2014 was they launched a, an offensive into this area in Sinjar where these people live. There's a few hundred thousand Yazidis, maybe 500,000 in northern Iraq. And they are spread out among, I don't know, a hundred or villages or a few towns. And ISIS, you know, set about not just systematically murdering the men, but I think what was most disgusting and gratuitous was that they divided the men and women and sold the women into slavery. And when we think about the Shah or the Holocaust, I think, you know, the dividing of families and the systematic nature of it, I think, I've read about a lot of genocides. I read about Rwanda and Armenians and things like that. And I think... You know, ISIS, ISIS did this in a systematic way. They used to keep lists of slaves that they sold. And I, what also was shocking was at least 5,000 members of ISIS were from Europe. They were people that were either converts or people that had grown up in Europe. So I was, you know, shocked by the idea that here you have a conflict in which some of the poorest people in the world, in northern Iraq, very vulnerable people, are being preyed upon by people that, to my view, were quite privileged. So that's why I, I really you know, had a connection with what was happening. I'd never met any of these people. And it actually, when we first went to Iraq in, I think that was in 2015, in June, we did meet Yazidis because my colleague and I went up to this Yazidi temple in Lalish, which is their equivalent of, I wouldn't say it's their equivalent of Jerusalem, but it's a very important holy site for them, I guess. So we met some of the survivors. And then it was later that year in December 2015, when I finally was able to get into Sinjar which was the area that had been most of the genocide had taken place in. And I think I was one of the first journalists or one of the few that got in very soon after the liberation. So when they were finding all these mass graves and I, um, I wouldn't pretend to be someone that's an expert in Yazidis and I didn't spend a huge amount of time. I've been back and forth a bunch of times and been to refugee camps, but I tried to, I tried to tell a little bit of the story of what happened to these people. And I, it's connected to the other stories there, I think, with the Kurdish struggle, the Kurdish struggle for, for rights or independence, because the Kurds themselves had been victims of Saddam Hussein's uh, genocide and gassing. So I thought that these stories were all kind of intertwined. We also visited a lot of Christian villages that had been totally destroyed by ISIS, where ISIS had blown up the churches or used the churches as bomb-making factories, knowing that the coalition wouldn't bomb them. So I felt the story of all these minorities is interconnected. And certainly there's a Jewish story there as well, because I've been to the, the uh, Kever Nachum or Nachum's tomb, which is a Jewish site in northern Iraq. And there is, of course, a Jewish history there, which was primarily eradicated in the 40s and 50s. 
Uh, now, in the book, um, you said that the, the fight against ISIS uh, was successful tactically, but it wasn't a success on a strategic level. How so? Well, I think the amazing thing about the fight against ISIS is, first of all, if you look at the countries that joined the coalition, which was led by the United States and created in the fall of 2014 and spring of 2015, it's something like 80 or 70 countries and partner forces. So it's the largest global coalition that's probably ever existed in human history. And also in terms of air power and the amount of ordinance it has access to, never before in history has a coalition been put together that has so many weapons and smart bombs and drones and everything you'd ever want. So, you know, as I said, tactically, the coalition ripped ISIS apart in the sense that using air power and all sorts of new technology, they were able to kill upwards of 50,000 of these guys. And I think the coalition lost just a handful of soldiers and fighters. So it's probably the greatest successful war in human history in terms of numbers like that, even better than maybe the, the 90, 1991 Gulf War. But that's, you know, that's tactics. America's very good at using Reapers and Predator drones and all this stuff you see in Homeland. And we're very, very good at that. But, you know, yeah, what's the long-term strategy? You know, you can kill lots of people. And you can blow up, um, you know, I, I remember reading every day the strike reports from the coalition because they're also very good at bureaucrats. So they keep lists of everything. So it's like, well, today we blew up a bed down location and, to, and we destroyed, we killed a mortar team or we blew up um, a smuggling track or something. I mean, it's an endless amount of stuff that they destroyed. But I don't, you know, in terms of what is the overall war, I mean, look, as I said with the Yazidis, first of all, the coalition never put any assets into finding any of the victims of ISIS. So there are still 3,000 missing women uh, and children. There are still four or 500,000, I think, Yazidis in refugee camps. There are millions of Iraqis that are displaced. There are cities that were destroyed. So, you know, where's the long-term strategy? If you, when, we, when we defeated the Nazis or we defeated uh, Japan, we, re, we or other people rebuilt those countries, right? The Marshall Plan, et cetera, et cetera. That's why... That's why Germany and Japan, are, or at least partly why, their success is today. So you can win a war, but you can, you know, that famous aphorism, whatever, you can lose the peace or whatever. So, like, I just think if you look at Iraq today or Syria, is there any evidence that Iraq or Syria are on the right, um, right track? I mean, Iraq, I, I understand in southern Iraq, where they have all the oil, people can barely get their kids to school in terms of uh, good running water and, and normal sewage. So... It seems to me, yeah, we won the war. ISIS was quote-unquote defeated. But there's a lot of question marks out there about what's the strategy? What's America's strategy in Afghanistan? The United States is withdrawing from Afghanistan after 20 years. If you were born on 9-11, you're old enough to serve there, which is kind of insane. So I think there's a lot of evidence the United States or Western powers are not very good in the long-term strategy, but certainly very good at winning. I mean, winning on the ground in terms of numbers. So uh, are we looking for, what, down the line, what are we, is, there, is there some kind of resurgence here? I know it's become decentralized. Um, their their uh, um, MO uh, now is to, to be decentralized. What do you see going forward? Look, I would say that Islamic State or ISIS or Daesh, whatever you want to call it, it was an organization that didn't grow up out of nowhere, right? I mean, its roots are somehow linked to al-Qaeda and other organizations. And so ISIS is, as you said, decentralized. Many of the groups that are now members of ISIS are doing most of the killing, like in Sinai or Boko Haram or al-Shabaab or groups like that in, in, uh, in Africa, or even as far away as um, Afghanistan, the Philippines. 
all these groups share things in common. Many of them blend uh, a kind of worldwide view of caliphate or Islamism with some sort of local cause that originally gave root to them. So I think that the problem is that even if ISIS disappears, the nature of this kind of black flag caliphate type of movement certainly does not disappear. And I think that ISIS basically sent the message, you know, whereas maybe Al-Qaeda had tiptoed around, you know, total genocide of minorities, what we've seen in places like Nigeria with Boko Haram or other places is that the, the targeting and mass murder of, of other religious groups by these types of Islamist groups is just totally normal nowadays. And I don't see any evidence that the groups themselves, their ideology is moderating or even, I mean, these they've only gotten worse. Now, it's the other side of the coin, though, is I think a lot of countries out there that once flirted with extremism, and I would say we could say, for instance, Saudi Arabia or some countries in the Gulf, where in the past they were accused of having far too many of these people uh, at least leaving those countries or being fueled somehow by living there. I think most countries in the world have really turned against this extremist ideology, which what that tells us is, or what leads us to conclude, I think, is that when we see new ISIS or extremist cells popping up, they tend to be popping up in weird places like Europe. They're not popping up in the heart of the Middle East. So instead of a bunch of jihadists or extremists coming from the Middle East and going to a place like Chechnya or Bosnia, now the process is kind of a bit of the opposite. You have people coming from Europe or Bangladesh or the Philippines or countries like that, and they are actually going to the Middle East to radicalize local people or even to places like Africa. So that's an interesting process. Let's move now to um, uh, Iran. Uh, we're in the midst of the coronavirus, uh, which uh, has uh, uh, really uh, made its presence felt in Iran with uh, thousands and th tens of thousands of cases and a number of many fatalities. Uh, and yet, and yet the, the Iranians continue to move ahead, despite everything else that's going on in the world. Uh, the recent launch of a military satellite, the buzzing, uh, by um, Iranian patrol boats of uh, U.S. naval vessels. Um, this, this, not to mention uh, the continued uh, hammering away, uh, as it does always at, at Israel, um, the blame for the coronavirus being placed on Zionists in Israel. I mean, classic um, Iranian behavior. Um, let's talk about Iranian hegemonism uh, now and after the coronavirus is behind us. What do you see? Well, as you said, I mean, Iran is a fascinating country. It has a huge amount of human um, potential and in terms of its abilities, you know, it's the only country in the region, I think, that is basically developing its own drones, besides Israel, so let's take that out of the equation, but I'm saying that, you know, no other country in the region is doing what Iran does. I mean, it's built its own drone armies. It's successfully sent those drones to all over the Middle East, to the Hezbollah, to the Houthis in Yemen. It's fired ballistic missiles at the Americans. What other country has ever done that? I mean, Iran has extraordinary uh, abilities. It's built uh, extraordinary missile programs, drones. As you mentioned, I think the harassing of US vessels. On most of these issues, Iran itself is not prepared for a real war. I mean, missiles don't win wars, and neither do little fast boats that the IRGC has. One U.S. aircraft carrier could destroy the Iranian Navy in an afternoon, so it's not a question of what's really, what could happen if it's one-to-one. -one. But Iran likes this kind of pinprick, kind of asymmetric warfare, and Iran likes the idea that over the last 30 years or so, it has invested heavily in recruiting people in Iraq, 
Syria, Lebanon, and now I think Yemen and a few other places, even among Palestinians. So it set, put the seeds down decades ago, and those seeds are all growing up. So you see people like um, the guy who was with Qasem Soleimani, the head of the IRGC, uh, Quds Force, the guy that was with him, this guy Abu Maki al-Mahandis, was an Iraqi militia leader. He was someone that was working with Iran since the 80s. So he was an Iraqi. And we see that Iran kind of has this way of, of finding these proxies and kind of holding out these countries. So you take a country like Lebanon or Iraq, Iran doesn't want to control the government to totally. It doesn't want to have a successful state. It wants to co-opt pieces of the state, uh, and it wants to then use it for its own, its own methods, which would be whatever its long-term agenda is, which is, first of all, the destruction of Israel, obviously targeting America, obviously some sort of Shiite hegemony or influence in these places. And it's a very sophisticated country, and Iran is doing something that I think very few other countries in the world are doing in terms of extending its power and using that power on all sorts of levels, politically, economically, militarily. Every Other countries do things like that, China, Turkey, etc. But Iran is really, really doing it, and I think they've been very successful in the Middle East, and we will, we will, I think we'll see more of that. You know, but so much of this is, is apparent. How do you explain, for example, that um, Europe, and I'll put Europe as a, as a collective entity here, um, how do you explain that notwithstanding the fact that all of this is there for all to see, all of these challenges that we just talked about, um, the, um, the, the drone program, the nuclear program, uh, et cetera, the, the arming of Hezbollah, the use of Hezbollah uh, as, uh, as foot soldiers uh, in, uh, in Syria, et cetera, et cetera. And yet there is this, this hesitation in Europe to join in a, in a collective pushback. What, what's behind that? Well, I think part of the problem is in the, in the whole nature of the assumption that Europe should do anything. I mean, I think Europe, people don't say this openly, but I would think that lots of people say, yeah, well, so what? I mean, let Iran have the Middle East. Who cares? Why does this matter to us? I mean, you know, is Iran worse than the Saudis? Or, you know, what's the alternative? Is it, is it worse than the jihadists? I mean, that's usually the kind of think, thought process that takes place. And I think that that's the, and also I think if you're in Europe, they're also told that they should be very worried about China and Russia and other countries in, in the world that are rising powers. So they say, well, okay, but we have Iran, but the Russians are also doing things. We can't confront them all. We don't want war. I think most countries, what comes down to the fact that when you ask them what, what they really think the end term solution is, they say, yeah, but we are not willing to go to war. So since we're not willing to do that, what would you like us to do? You want us to sanction Hezbollah? I mean, and I think they're also worried that there will be retaliation because the Europe understands that Iran has networks in Europe that are capable of, of getting up to no good. They would prefer that those networks and terrorist operations just take place somewhere else. I mean, that's something that happened, by the way, back in the 70s and 80s with the Palestinian attacks in Europe. In many cases, Palestinians would carry out terrorist attacks against Israel, and those guys, would be, they would let them go if there was a hostage situation. They'd say, listen, just do it somewhere else. Just don't do it here. Right. I, that's my sense of it. I just think that like, the idea that other countries want to, quote, unquote, co confront Iran, nobody wants to confront Iran. I think that countries in the Middle East, like Israel, the Saudis, or the Gulf, some of the Gulf states or whatever, they're thrown together in a relationship of convenience because they feel directly threatened. But 
you know, Russia and Turkey work with Iran. I don't think that Egypt cares particularly about Iran's rise, as long as Iran doesn't do anything inside Egypt, Egypt's borders. And so uh, what, what do you see going forward? I mean, the, this is, their activity, their hegemonistic activity continues. Um, and um, what, what do you see over the next 12 months? Uh, or what do you see after the, um, the preoccupation that we have with the coronavirus, once that's done, um, going forward? Well, I think you mentioned before, and I didn't really answer it sufficiently, <clears throat> the coronavirus is, is a problem for Iran because it isn't, you know, Iran, I think it certainly shows off its abilities, but I mean, a lot of this is showing off, putting on a good face because inside Iran, they have economic problems. They, there's no oil exports are not, are, you know, not very good. There's no money in oil now. And they don't have a way to make income. And the virus is a huge headache for them. I mean, it's lots of people have been killed. Even if the estimates are wrong or whether the government official figures are wrong, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's not good for them. So, you know, look, I think Iran will eventually try to produce a nuclear device. It doesn't have a way to deliver the device, maybe, which is a problem for them. And look, Iran doesn't really want a real conflict. Look what's happened in Syria. Iran has been transferring weapons to Hezbollah through Syria for many years. Israel's carried out more than 1,000 airstrikes. In fact, if you did the math, the 1,000 is the one that they've admitted, or the 1,000 targets struck or something. The overall numbers must be much higher than that by now. So just in the last few months, the Syrian regime has accused Israel of numerous important airstrikes. So, you know, if Iran doesn't want a conflict, if it wanted a conflict, it would respond. I think Iran understands it doesn't have a way to really respond to Israel. It would like to always have this um, cudgel of Hezbollah with its 150,000 rockets as a permanent threat to Tel Aviv. And I think it's clear that the rockets have gotten more precise and more dangerous. So, I mean, from Iran's point of view, it likes the idea that it has a front line with Israel, and yet it's very far away. So it's hard for Israel to strike back against them. But, you know, I think Iran, if you look at its history, it likes to fight proxy wars. It doesn't want a real war. Iran's regime doesn't even like to sacrifice soldiers. You know, they hire people from Afghanistan to fight in Syria. I mean, if Iran wanted to fight a war, wouldn't they send their own people? They're hiring a bunch of mercenaries, uh, poor, poor Shiites, from places like Pakistan and Afghanistan, paying them to go all the way to Syria to die. So that would lead me to conclude that the regime actually is very, very afraid of casualties. The regime understands that if it pokes the bear too much, whether that bear is the United States or Israel, that a lot of things are going to be unleashed against it, and it, it may not, it will not do well. So I think that it's a, remember back in the Cold War, it was, they had those theories of mutually assured destruction or whatever. I think that there's a, there is a bit of a feeling, I think, like that in the region. And obviously, unfortunately for Israel, Israel has to devote a massive amount of resources now dealing with Iran, when Israel would prefer to devote those resources to other things. Uh, you referenced... Uh just to before uh, the answer that you just gave, uh, the Gulf states, and we've seen over the last couple of years, uh, it's become more apparent and more out in the open uh, that uh, there has been this unprecedented cooperation uh, between Israel and, and the Gulf states. Um, how, how important is that? I see it as important, and ask you. Uh, how important is that in terms of um, bringing for lack of a better word, uh, some sense of stability uh, to the region. 
uh, notwithstanding the fact that that the Iranian issue is what really has caused this you know, the countries to, to coalesce. Um, but there seems to be something more there. How do you see it? Well, it's, I think it's very complicated. The Gulf states have a lot of money. There are not very many people there. Uh, they have a lot of foreign workers. Now, they're very high tech. So if you look at if we look at like what is Israel, Israel is a complicated country in which it's an old civilization, but has a lot of, you know, modern areas like Tel Aviv. And I think the Gulf states remind us a bit of Tel Aviv as a success story. So I think Israel plugs in very well with the Gulf states if there could be more on the surface in terms of trade. Strategically, I think Israel and the Gulf states have natural, natural enemies and they can work together Regionally, the Gulf states see the region a bit the way Israel, I think, also sees it, which is the Gulf states don't like, they're worried about Iran. Israel's concerned as well. And both of them are concerned about Islamic extremism and also not just extremism, but the Muslim Brotherhood in particular. And so Israel and the Gulf states have shared interests in not having the Brotherhood control Egypt. And they both have actually shared problems with the Turkish government as well. So that means you kind of check a lot of boxes, I think, could that bring stability? I think the problem what we're seeing now is that in general, what happens is you have a three-sided Middle East, which is you have an Iranian kind of octopus nexus of Iran and all its proxies. You have a Turkish uh, role as well, which is Turkey and Qatar and Turkey's allies in Northern Syria, as well as Turkey's ally in Libya, uh, sorry, um, in the, yeah, in the, in the conflict in Libya. So I think that, the other side of the coin then is you have a third side, which is the Gulf, Jordan, Egypt, uh, in a sense, Israel, and, um, and the groups that they support or are willing to work with in shared interests, which could be, for instance, uh, the Kurdish, Kurdistan region of northern Iraq or issues in Libya or other places. Yeah, those countries all want stability. But, you know, I guess stability is a word that the, the Turks and the, and the Iranians would use as well. They think that they're involved in stability as well. It's just a question of who gets to kind of run it all. And I think that the tragedy for Israel in all this is that Israel used to be very good friends with Iran and Turkey in the 50s and 60s. So it's weird that the region could have actually been stable. Israel could have worked with all these groups and everyone could get along well. But every time something went right for Israel in terms of, well, okay, peace with Egypt, then Israel would lose another country. Well, okay, now there, but there's peace with Egypt, but a revolution in Iran. So you get one thing, but you lose the other one. And I think that's kind of the problem, which is that we live in a three-sided Middle East, which reminds me a lot more of Europe in 1912 or something, where you have these kind of large alliance systems. And I'm not sure that brings you stability unless you can find a way to sort out what's happening in Iraq, Syria, and Libya, and Yemen. And I would be, I don't think it's clear how those four conflicts will be resolved. Uh, they haven't been resolved in a long time. So final question, we'll ask you to prognosticate. Uh, as a, a serious analyst of the issues on the ground, uh, looking ahead 12 months uh, around uh, Israel's borders, uh, beyond that in the, in the broader Middle East, what should we be looking for? In the next 12 months? Or 12 months uh, from now, what do, you, what do you see? Well, I would say that, just quick, a quick overview, let's think. Um, Iraq will not, be, will not be that stable because Iraq may have a new prime minister, but it has serious economic problems. And they have to sort out relationships between the Shiite blocs that run the country and the Kurdish region 
and occur an ISIS insurgency that will continue to bubble along. I think that Syria, there are lots of big question marks there because Eastern Syria, the Americans may eventually leave, which will then fuel the Turkish regime and the Syrian regime plus Iran to fight over some of the scraps there, which, which will cause, can cause more conflicts. Lebanon is a disaster economically. It's falling apart. I think that's not good because it probably only empowers Hezbollah. Yemen's conflict is now slowly, slowly slowing to a halt in the sense that it will just be a divided country, but the low-level conflict continues, so people keep suffering. I don't see how the Libyan conflict will be, will be changed. The Libyan conflict is being fueled now by more and more drones sent from Turkey and the Gulf, so we'll see that keep going. Now, in terms of, I think, Israel, I think that Israel has a new, a new prime minister in uh, coalition, but it's not clear that it's entirely stable. So I think there's a lot of question marks there. I think that we'll see Israel continuing to have to hit uh, Iranian or Hezbollah targets in Syria. And that can always spiral, spiral out of control. So it seems to me the next 12 months, uh, they're kind of getting more of the same, but all of the things that we're seeing now, I think all have potential to lead to whole new rounds of violence in, in Syria or Iraq. But, most of the region is so tired, I think, of large-scale warfare, like what happened with ISIS, that most of the region, nobody wants another huge war. Everyone wants, you know, to kind of put their, put their adversary in check a bit and, like, you know, count a little bit of coup and show off, like the Iranians do with their, you know, oh, we have a new satellite thing. Um, you know, so what we'll see probably is the Iranians will take pictures of some secret site in Israel with that satellite just to show off. But... Does, what does that mean? Do we, will we see like a massive, complicated Iranian drone attack on Israel the way they did with the Saudis? I don't think they have the guts to do it. I don't think that will happen. So I assume in a year we'll be kind of where we are now, although in the Middle East you never like to make those predictions. <laughs> well, Seth, thank you so much for your analysis, uh, for looking at the, uh, the picture in the Middle East, uh, which uh, it's, the more you change, the more it stays the same, as you've, as you've just said. Uh, thank you so much for, for being with us uh, today. The book is After ISIS, America, Iran, and the Struggle for the Middle East by Seth Fransman of the Jerusalem Post. Well, if you like what you hear so far, make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to visit our website, benebrith.org, to learn about our work. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. For my guest, Seth Ransman, I'm your host, Dan Mary Ashen. We'll talk to you next time on the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. Stay safe, everyone.